We do have the text in the bulletin today too, uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you, the whole text is, is in the front page of the bulletin. Please have it out. You're going to need to keep your eye on it. <clears throat> you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to have a lawyer during questioning. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you, and so on. Statements like this, well, Matt Klingelhofer know very, very well, off by heart, I'm sure, Matt, right? They're Miranda rights. You know about Miranda rights. Miranda rights are in place to ensure that during an arrest that a suspect consciously knows that they are able to be fairly represented and that they don't have to incriminate themselves. It, it goes with the Fifth Amendment, right? No doubt you've seen courtroom movies where you've seen people sitting in courts and, you know, you've got the prosecution coming against them and they say, I plead the Fifth. In our legal system, in our legal system, silence is all about ensuring that you are not self-incriminating. 2,000 years ago, I can assure you, in human history, there were no Miranda rights. There was no Fifth Amendment. Let me assure you that Jesus staying silent in the face of his accusers, well, if, if Jesus had have come in our time, in America, to where there are Miranda rights and, and a Fifth Amendment, the only reason he would have used them is not for his guilt, but for ours. We're going to find that today. I want to put that to you today. He didn't need to open his mouth so that he would incriminate, not open his mouth so that he would stay away from incriminating himself. In fact, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. When he was stood before the governor, Pilate knew he was innocent. He said, I've got no, I find no evil in this man. Pilate was told that this man was king of the Jews. This is where we were last week. Pilate couldn't see that he was guilty of trying to usurp the role of Caesar because Caesar is the king that Pilate knows. Now, Jesus had plenty of evidence through all of his trials, through the Jewish trial, through the Roman trial. He could have just come out with plenty of evidence and say, I'm not vying for Caesar or Herod's job. In fact, do you remember when I was standing around a crowd and I said, actually, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? He actually said those words. Other, there were witnesses to him saying those words. Jesus could have easily defended himself. And yet, in both proceedings, in both trials, and then going on from the trial to what we're looking at today in the execution of judgment, the overwhelming sound from Jesus is silence. Silence. Let me tell you, that I think when you look at all of the words that come to Jesus, the way that they come to Jesus, when you look at Jesus this morning, that silence, it's deafening. It's going to be deafening. Because of Jesus, because of his silence, 
the only words that we're actually able to read, and it's in Matthew 27, we're going to start from verse 27 this morning, if you're looking, but the only words that we're able to read in this section from 27 right through to the 44, where we're looking this morning, the only words we're able to read are the words and actions of Roman soldiers, of Jewish crowds, and of the Jewish leaders. I think you're going to see today, I hope with me, that in the face of Jesus' silence, it's them who actually needed some Miranda rights. It's them who actually sort of stayed silent lest they incriminate themselves. It goes completely the opposite way this morning. See, we don't hear Jesus' words here. We, we don't hear it. And so we, we kind of want to ask, you know, what is it about this? We don't read his words. We, we, we want to hear from you, Jesus, in, in these situations. You know, what's, what's the truth? How do we know who you, who you really are? And, and I want to put it if, because, you know, Jesus isn't really defending himself here. Where do we find the truth about Jesus in the face of public opinion? Where do you find that? Here's my answer. Outside of also saying, well, read the word of God and you're going to find it. But in this text, where do you find it? The cross. That's where you find it. That's where you know about Jesus. Look, look at the cross. I want to put this to you this morning. Looking to the cross shows us the true nature of our King, Jesus, and the actual reality of our salvation. So last week we have him before Pilate. Pilate knows he's innocent. Pilate can't get away from that. Pilate's not innocent in it because he says, see to it yourself, take him away, scourge him and crucify him after he's tried to wash his hands of Jesus, the king, in front of him. And then we read these words from verse 27. Look at them with me. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. It's the truth about Jesus in the face of public opinion. Well, while public opinion scoffs, there's a reason why Jesus is silent. We don't hear any gory details of the scourging of Jesus. Pilate just says, take him away, scourge him and crucify him. That scourging has already happened. We know that scourging is brutal. We know exactly what Pilate said to be done would be done. He was scourged and crucified as, as Pilate's orders. Jesus is taken from that scourge, taken into the praetorium. You might even have that word in your Bible, depending on your translation. The governor's headquarters. It's, it's most likely uh, Herod's old palace that, that Pilate was now occupying. And we read in this that a whole battalion were brought before him. Now, a battalion of Roman soldiers is something around the, the 
the number of 600 of them, okay? So that's a, that's a big number. Most scholars are not sure that it was 600 in the whole battalion, but it was everybody from that whole battalion who was there at the time, right? And I would still say that's a, whatever it is, it's a good crowd of soldiers. It's, it's quite a lot. And these soldiers have an incredibly unique opportunity. You know, it's not really very easy for them to love Jews. In fact, they don't. They, they hold them with contempt, all right, this is one of those people that hate our domination, that we have to be here, you know, guarding, keeping law for Caesar in this province. They don't like us. We don't like them. Whenever we try to do something with them, it, it stirs up a riot. Even, even Pilate saw that. He, he wanted to give Jesus instead of this Barabbas, and instead of giving Jesus who he knew was innocent, he gave Barabbas who he knew to be guilty because he didn't want to start a riot with the Jews because he wouldn't be giving them what they want. And so they yell out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so he doesn't want riots. You know, you do something to a dignitary, a Jewish dignitary, that would start an incredible riot. You imagine the, the unique position that the Roman soldiers find them in now. Here is a guy who they're saying, they're accusing of He's, he's saying he's king of the Jews. It's a title of a dignitary, isn't it? It's, it's, this is one of the big dudes. And guess what? We get to have this guy because, and do what we like with him because they hate him. We don't start any riot by doing anything to this guy. So what do they do? They start a mock enthronement. There's a fair amount of work that goes into this. You know, they're all together. They're all assembled. They get Jesus. They put him out in front. They take off his bloodied clothes. He's been brutally whipped. By the way, he's probably already in physical shock. They put a scarlet robe on him. They're representing nobility here. Now, nobility normally wears a purple robe. In fact, if you read Mark's gospel, Mark calls it purple, because he's saying what it represents, right? But they, they, they're just using what they have. He, they get a, a scarlet robe, probably a centurion's robe, and, and they put that on Jesus to show him as, as some type of nobility. And they get some material from some type of spiky bush or spiky plant, and they weave it and fashion it together in a crown and they put it on his head. This is a coronation ceremony. I can just imagine how they're doing this, right? Have you ever seen a coronation ceremony? I can just imagine how they're doing this in, in the mocking of it and the crown on his head. And they get a staff, a stick, a, a, a reed. They stick it in his hand as if it's a king's scepter, a sign of absolute power. And then they kneel before him. As if he's a king, but knowing he's not, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, probably laughing. Laughing and mocking at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords standing right there in front of them. The only time that they would know that type of statement, Hail, King, is the words that they would use, Ave Caesar. Hail, Caesar. This man is no Caesar in their eyes. They're mocking him because he could never be. Look, he's in their possession. He's, he's under their treatment. He's, he's theirs. There's no way this man could be king. He's just a 
do that we can mock at and get away with it right now. And then they took the reed out of his hand. They beat him over the head with it. And they spat. If that's not enough, they spat on Jesus. What stands out to you? Like when you read those, those verses from, you know, 27 through to about 31, what, what stands out to you as you read that, that account from something that actually happened in history 2,000 years ago? You read through that and there's, I believe it's, it's so blatantly there by omission. It's Jesus' words. Jesus' actions. He says nothing. He does nothing. What's significant about that silence? We need to understand who Jesus is. See, you and I, 2,000 years later, after all of the New Testament that we have, the whole whole record of the Bible, understanding about Jesus, we are looking back at this. Just understand these words that if you were to read from John's Gospel, the first verses in John's Gospel, let me remind you of the verses that you would read. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John's talking about Jesus. Before John even starts his gospel, he wants people to know who this Jesus really is. Well, this is the Jesus that Matthew has here in front of the guards. It actually, he's just describing this situation that happened. This is the Jesus who could speak a word and extinguish, just a word and extinguish the life of everybody around him. He could make them kneel down and actually mean it and say, you are the son of God, the king of kings. And you know what? Later on, when one of them sees, one of them will say, you are the son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. One of them will. But I want you all to know that there will be a day where all of them will. Every human being will. Jesus could breathe in their direction and extinguish them if it were by his will. But Jesus is determined to do something greater. Greater than showing his might to a battalion of soldiers. In fact, Jesus is doing what he told his disciples he was coming to do. Seven chapters earlier in Matthew 20, as they were approaching Jerusalem for this week, we've got one week in eight chapters of the last eight chapters of Matthew, but as they were approaching Jerusalem to come into this week, listen to these verses from verse 17 and 19 from Matthew 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. That's happened. And they will condemn him to death. That's happened. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's happening in this text now. And he will be raised on the third day. We'll get to that. 
This is part of the sovereign plan of God. This is bigger than God showing his might to a battalion of up to 600 men. This is so much bigger than that. Jesus, Jesus has come here to do this. Not, notice that he doesn't just say to his disciples, I'm going to go there and die for sins. He says, I'm going to be handed over, condemned to death, and flogged and mocked. What is he going to do? Not just die, he's going to suffer and die. Jesus, we so often talk about Jesus' death, but listen, listen, Jesus suffered in our place, suffered at the hands of men and suffered under the wrath of an eternal God that he has on sin. Jesus suffered in our place and died in our place. It's not just death, it's suffering and death. This is what the whole Bible, this is the point of Jesus coming is he's always shown us that this is the way it was going to be in in, in, in all through the Old Testament scriptures, they point to the Messiah is going to come and he's going to suffer. He's going to be a suffering servant king. Last year we went through Isaiah. We finished going through it, but uh, we, we went through the servant songs in Isaiah. There's uh, about four or so servant songs in Isaiah that talk about this suffering servant who's, this is who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to come and suffer in our place. I want you to hear just a couple of them. Here's one, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5 to 8. Just listen to these words. The Lord God, and it's like words that we hear. They're, they're the prophetic voice of the servant yet to come. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. See, that sounds like somebody who's suffering, but not suffering in complete defeat. It sounds like some, who, who is my adversary? Adversary, let him come near to me. It sounds like somebody who through suffering gains victory. This, your, my suffering brings victory. Let him come and do it. I give my back to them. And how can we not read from Isaiah 53 today in one of those servant songs, these words, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He's doing not only what he told his disciples a week ago that he would do, but he's doing what he's told all of us in all of human history that he would do. It's all through the Old Testament. Ever since humans sinned, we have always been pointed to the desperation of our sinful condition and our need for a saviour, and we've always been looking for him. Now, here is what the situation is, is when you and I are mocked. Have you ever been mocked? Come on, you've been mocked. You know me, I've been mocked. I deserve to be mocked half the time, right? Mock away. You've been mocked. And often when someone mocks you, what do you do right back? Mock. And when someone acts wickedly toward you, what do you do right back? Act wickedly. We love revenge. 
We love not being put down. We love to be the person on top. We love that. That's just a, the, the human thing. We're not Jesus. The one who is on top doesn't act that way. Why? Because Jesus is showing us in this who he is. Now, I know when we read the Psalms, you know, you, you open up that very first Psalm and you read this first Psalm and you read this thing about this blessed man, you think, I want to be like that guy. But none of us can be. There is only one who can be. And, and I believe what Jesus is showing us is who this blessed man is, who the ultimate blessed man is, even right in front of us. Listen to the first verses of Psalm 1 and just see what you see in Jesus. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by water, streams of water that yields its fruits in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He prospers in not sitting in the seat of scoffers. He prospers in, in not being with the wicked and acting like the wicked. Even when wickedness is brought upon him and mocking is brought upon him, he doesn't sit in that place. It's different to so many of us. He's the ultimate blessed man and all he does is prosper. And you say, well, I'm looking at it now. It doesn't look like prospering to me. He's silent and, and look at what's happening. Scourging, mocking, beating, spitting. I don't see prospering. Let me tell you that what the world sees as weakness and mocks is absolutely Jesus' success for us. We need to see that. See, while the world scoffs, Jesus is majestically silent for good reason as the suffering king that he is for us. And so I, I want to expand this comment I'm, I made earlier by saying this, while public opinion scorns our silent king is successful he's successful in it and through it now before we get to the next part of scorning so what happens here is matthew has given us this romans mocking jesus and then he gives us this little part where we see some discussion of the crucifixion and then we see jews mocking jesus and, and so that mocking is, is really, he's showing us this mocking, but right in the middle of it, our focus is what happens and our focus is on the cross. It's mocking sandwiches the cross. That's why we need to look at the cross, right? And so listen to these verses that are in between here from verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of information about the cruelty of crucifixion here. In fact, if you want to read about the real cruelty of the crucifixion, you don't find it in the scriptures. 
Other people describe crucifixion, but there's not a really in-depth description of the cruelty of the, of the suffering of crucifixion. That's, that's not as much the point that we have in the Gospels. We don't have the steps here of nailing Jesus' hands and feet, lifting him up in the excruciating pain and suffering of, the, of, of crucifixion. He simply describes the whole scene. That's what we get from Matthew. The soldiers continue to mistreat him. They give him a sour concoction of wine with gall, like bile mixed in with, with wine. Horrible. And again, we see this title, King of the Jews. It's used as a, a charge against him, a sign above his head. And he's crucified here between two bandits. And so we, we have this. We're going to come back to this. But then it immediately goes on to Jesus being mocked. This is the situation that Jesus is in. But in that situation, in this situation, as we're seeing Jesus on a cross, listen to what happens. Look again from verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself if you are the son of god come down from the cross so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying he saved others he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now I want to ask some questions about this. Let's, let's have a look at what we see here in that text. You know, have a, have a look carefully from verse 39 to 43. You see them making statements. If, if this is who he is, then he should be able to do this, right? If this is who he is, then he should be able to do this. They make statements about his identity, and then they say, if his identity is this, if this is who he is, this is what we would expect. Now, it starts with the crowd, and then it moves on to the Jewish leaders. Now, the, the, the crowd... I believe, have already heard all of the accusations about Jesus from the Jewish leaders. I mean, the crowd were there before Pilate and the Jewish, we, we read that the Jewish leaders had persuaded them to, to get Barabbas released when he was offered. Get Barabbas released. Here's the reasons why. I think what they probably would have heard, unless they heard it from some other way, is all of the accusations that they had brought against Jesus. And we hear, hear it, and we've heard it in the weeks coming up to, to this as we've been preaching through it. We, we've heard these accusations, even from the night before, even the chapter before here, talking about the night before, in Matthew 26, 61, we read that there were two people, they couldn't get people to come and do this, but then they found two, and there, there were two people that came forward with this accusation that Jesus said he would destroy the temple and he would rebuild it in three days. Now, here's a question. Did Jesus once say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Yes. Yes, he did. It's not what they didn't hear. It's what they don't understand about it, right? They totally misunderstood what he was meaning, you know. The temple is going to be destroyed and raised again, but he was talking about his own body, wasn't he? He was talking about, I am going to be destroyed and raised again. The temple is going to be destroyed and raised again, but he's talking about his own body. And Jesus, even once in front of these Pharisees earlier in Matthew, had referred to himself. He stood in front of them and said, I am greater than the temple is here. That's me. I'm greater than the temple. Jesus' focus isn't on bricks and mortar, folks. 
Jesus, in doing it, here's the reality. What is this temple for? Well, this temple is for people bringing their sacrifices, their lambs and their goats and their bulls to a priest who would mediate for them and a sacrifice of an animal would be made and the priest would go in and and once a year go into the Holy of Holies on their behalf so that somehow the appeasement of God might happen and they would come out and it was all, there was all a picture because it would never ever satisfy. They had to keep every year, all the time, bringing back their, their animals in sacrifice and in, to all of the operation of this temple. And what Jesus is really doing in all of this is saying that through the cross there, when, it, when he goes to the cross, when he is, is when he, this temple is destroyed and raised again, there will no longer ever be a need for another animal sacrifice because the once and for all sacrifices come. There will never be a need for another high priest because he is the mediator between God and man himself, being the God-man. There will not be a need for a physical temple ever again. Now, they might not understand why it's true, but it's absolutely true that what they're saying about Jesus is the reality. They just don't understand what they're saying. Now, he has absolutely come to destroy the temple and rebuild it again in three days. But look carefully at the other phrases that they use. I'm not going to give as much explanation. Let's just look at them. That they use to taunt Jesus. If this is who you are, then this is what we expect. Well, who do they think he, who are they saying he, he thinks he is that they don't believe? Well, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, where have you heard that statement again before? Wasn't it back in the wilderness when Jesus was being tempted by Satan? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes. It's absolutely true. Verse 42, he saved others. Did Jesus save others? Yes. He healed so many. Blind could see, lame could walk, deaf could hear, cast out demons. He raised the dead. They're, they're not saying this in a good way. They're saying, you know, we, we hear stories about this. It's, it's who he says he, is. He, he, he saved others, but he can't save himself. It's a taunt. It's why we don't believe it. They're deriding him. They're, they're doing very, the same, the, very much the same thing with this glorious title that they use. He is the king of Israel. If he is the king of Israel, is he the king of Israel? Yes, he's absolutely king of Israel. Just read through Matthew. Just go back. If you weren't here last week, you didn't hear last week's sermon, please go back and listen to it. And I went through all of Matthew and some of the Old Testament, how there's clearly pointing to the Messiah that would come, would be a a king, the king of Israel. And here he is. He's the king of Israel. Anyone who reads the scriptures in the gospel of Matthew know that Matthew is clearly saying that Jesus is the king. Yes, he is. Let's say if you're the king of Israel, you need to come off that cross. Verse 43, he trusts in God. He says he's the son of God. Is that true? Yes. Did he say he was the son of God? Well, let me refer back again to just the evening before when he was at trial with the Jewish leaders. Matthew 26, verse 63 and 64, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. You said it. Remember, he said those same words to Pilate, you king of the Jews, you said it. You said it. And then he says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's all but a complete confirmation, folks. 
you see that nothing that they say about Jesus and who he is here is actually untrue? They're mocking him. They're mocking the reality. They're actually using the glorious truth claims to do it. And they don't realize their truth. Their words are incriminating themselves because they're standing before the reality of what they're saying. There's another aspect to this that they're saying about Jesus that is a true, true, and this is the point that we all need to get to. Thank you for bearing with me because here it is. This is what we need to see right now. Look at how they're mocking him. Look at these true statements. They're saying, if this is who you are, if this is who you are, and they don't believe who he really is, right? But if this is who you are, then prove it. If you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Do you see that? Prove it. Look, look carefully at these verses 39 to 43 as we look at them. They're, 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 saying, they're saying that the proof they need that Jesus is who he is is if he comes off the cross. The proof, they're saying, the proof that you will not destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, it's because look at where you are. You're nailed to a cross like a common criminal. You're on a cross. The proof that you're not the son of God is that you're on a cross. The proof that you're not saviour, that you, you, you saved others, the proof that you don't really save is that you're on a cross. The proof that you can't be king of Israel is that you're on a cross. The proof that you don't trust in God and are not God's son is that God is not delivering you from that cross. Come down from the cross because that'll be the proof. All of these scornful taunts, and they don't realise the statements they're saying about Jesus are actually true. Look again what they say to him in verse 42. He saved others. Now, I really want to hone in on this one, just, just this one. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The reason they don't believe that Jesus can save others is because he cannot save himself. Now, I want to put to you that that's true too. Jesus cannot save himself. Now, you might say, hang on, didn't you just say before that in the beginning was the word that he created all that there was before there was anything? Didn't you, didn't you, you, know, didn't you just tell me the power of Jesus? Can't Jesus possibly save himself? But I really want you to hear the words of a 19th century commentator. I've used him once before, David Thomas. Just listen to these words. The greatest man on earth is the man who cannot. It's the man who cannot be unkind. It's the man who cannot tell a falsehood who cannot do a dishonourable thing or be guilty of a mean and selfish deed. The glory of the omnipotent God is that he cannot 
lie. These men, therefore, should have honoured, yea, have adored the weakness which they acknowledged. Their very confession condemns their conduct. Listen, they need Miranda rights right now. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Both of those statements are true. Jesus absolutely did and does save others, and he could not in that place save himself from coming off the cross. Now, we might say Jesus could have physically saved him and, and saved himself. He could have physically come off that cross. You know, if he can command the winds and the waves, surely he can get a couple of nails to come out of a piece of wood and walk off a piece of timber. Yes, of course he can, but no, morally, no, he can't. He can't lie. The whole Old Testament is looking for this saviour who is to suffer and die in our place. From the beginning of the world, from before creation, God had determined to come. He cannot lie. He cannot do otherwise than his purpose, what he has purposed to do, what he has told us all that he was going to do. He cannot save himself from the cross because he is the greatest king this world has ever known. Praise God, he cannot save himself from that cross. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that the very thing that these Jewish leaders want, they want to see him do this very thing to come off the cross, that very thing that would take away any degree of hope they have for salvation. And they're blaming Jesus for their unbelief. Hey, let him come down and we will believe. Imagine Jesus comes down off the cross and they believe. They believe in a lie. They believe where there's no satisfaction of God's wrath upon man's sin and they're still under it. They believe in an absolute tragedy. It didn't happen. Jesus stayed on the cross and he bore the wrath of God on mankind's behalf that, that he took in suffering and dying in our place and we need it because we can't do it for ourselves because we are condemned sinners. Look carefully at what we have here. Every single statement they make to, make to mock Jesus condemns them. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the son of God. He is the saviour. He is the king of Israel. And in order that, to be that, he cannot come off the cross. Jesus is doing immeasurably more and is immeasurably more than any of them are willing to accept. And by saying and doing what they are saying and doing to Jesus, they're completely naive also of their own greatest need. They said, save Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Barabbas is somebody who will give us what we want. What, for, you, for your life here on earth? For the way that you want to live now? For, for, for something that you get as a temporary gain? They don't understand their greatest need. We see that here. You know their greatest need? Do you know every human's greatest need? A saviour. To know your greatest need, you need to know your greatest problem. You and I and every other human being in all of history have sinned against the perfect, infinitely righteous, 
holy God of the universe. We've never met his standard. We've rebelled against him. We don't want to, we don't want to love him and worship him. We want our own worship. We want to say that our goodness is the definition of goodness, not his goodness. And we want to do whatever we want to do. And in that we are absolutely condemned for all of eternity to hell and deserve it. Our greatest need is someone to save us from the righteous, holy wrath of God that is rightfully upon us. It's rightfully upon us. Now, if you're a believer today, let me ask you a question. Just how thankful are you that Jesus cannot come off that cross? Just how thankful are you that Jesus cannot come off that cross? But if you're not a believer today, if you're with us today and you never turn from your sin and put your faith, your, all of your trust for your whole life in this Jesus, where every part of your life now trusts him and not yourself, you trust him in all because he is the only one that could, that could stand in your place because you are condemned, but he was never. He was always sinless before the Father. Your sin before God is your biggest problem. I know this world tells you, you're good, you're a good person. We all like to say it, oh, look at me, look at how good I am. I'm good, I'm good. I'll be right with God, I'm good, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, I'm a good person. You're not good. You're judging your goodness on the basis of other human beings. When you judge your goodness on the basis of the righteous, holy, infinitely perfect God, you're not good. Now, I say that because in Jesus' silence, he does all of this to be completely successful. Even the sinful actions and statements of these people that are before him, they're saying this stuff. But even in that, God had ordained that Jesus would even endure their statements, their mocking for us right from the very beginning hundreds of years before jesus came to die their statements are already written in texts by prophets and psalmists you heard some of them this morning when we read psalm 22 let me give you one to start with from psalm 68 69 verse 21 but you guys look at at the matthew text here this last part of the matthew text that we've read and you or or actually the middle part mainly the middle part of that matthew text that we read you, you, you just look at, at this text and you just hear these statements. Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. There's one more. In Matthew 27, 43, the priests and the elders say, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. What they mean is let God deliver him off the cross. But listen to Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does Jesus trust in the Lord? Yes. Does God deliver him? 
Yes. It doesn't come off a cross. He walked out of a tomb. He walked out of a tomb. He came, he died on the cross. He came to life from being dead. Did God deliver him? Yes. Praise God that he doesn't come off the cross. Instead, today we celebrate that he walked out of a tomb. And guess what? He will deliver all who repent of their sin and put their trust in him because he did it for those people. That's the only way to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. The only king who can save is the king who sacrificed himself for you so that, so that the judgment upon you is paid and this risen Lord can deliver you forever. Has he delivered you? Has he delivered you? I want to finish on something that I passed over early. This is just a closing comment, right? In those middle phrases, we have this scene of Jesus. Matthew just says he's, they crucified him, right? And then, and then they gambled. They cast lots for his clothes underneath the cross. There's so many more things in that section I'd love to talk about. We don't have time. But anyway, there's, there's this I just want to focus on for a moment. Um, look at how close to the cross you can be and miss the point. Right under the cross, they're more concerned about their temporal things. They're casting lots for Jesus' clothes. I'm sure that they're not very nice ones either. But, you know, it's about winning. I'm going to get whatever prize I can get. My life is all about getting a good retirement. My life is all about getting, uh, uh, having a good family. My life is all about having a great career. My life is all about my money. My life is all about my lifestyle. My life is all about whatever. And you know what you're doing when you do that and you have no focus on, on your position before the eternal God of the universe and your need for an eternal saviour? You know what you're doing? You're doing the same thing as, as the pettiness of soldiers casting lots for clothes right under the very cross of Christ. Your life in this world is, I don't know, if you're lucky, 85, maybe you make 90. Compare that to infinity. And when you're more worried about the 85 or 90 than you are about the infinity. Let me tell you, there is no difference between you and the pettiness of a soldier gambling for Jesus' clothes. So where do we find the truth about Jesus in the face of public opinion? Look to the cross. Looking to the cross shows us the true nature of our King and the reality of our salvation. The question this Easter is this. Do you see it? Do you see it? Let's pray.
God, I pray that we see it. Would you give us eyes to see it? Would you overcome our hearts, Lord, because they need to be overcome. Otherwise, we're Roman soldiers, we're a Jewish crowd, we're a Jewish leadership mocking at the truth. May we repent of our sin, put all of our trust in you for the glorious salvation that you have brought. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.